Hello and welcome again to Red Hacks, your favorite show about being a lefty journalist in a neoliberal world. It is with enormous glee that, due to popular demand, we return for season two of the show. As always, I'm Joanna Ramiro, your host with a geographically unplaceable accent, and I am here to remind you that Red Hacks is hosted by the incredible Politics Theory Other podcast. To keep abreast of all things Politics Theory Other, as well as to listen to the entire season one of Red Hacks, you should follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and and subscribe to the Spotify or SoundCloud channel at Paul Theory Other. Today we are recording from Brighton, where we are taking part in the phenomenal The World Transformed Festival, and we've sort of taken over TWTFM headquarters. What is more, my guest is the amazing American journalist Sarah Jaffe. Sarah has spent the last decade covering all sorts of labor struggles in the US, from the teachers' strike in Wisconsin to the organizing efforts of tech workers in Silicon Valley. She's also the author of Necessary Trouble and the co-host of the podcast Belabored, a fellow at the Type Media center and she's currently working on her next book sarah i am so happy to have you on the show i am so happy to be on the show so we're going to start with the my usual starting question which is literally how the hell did you get into journalism? I was an English major, which is a terrible thing to be because while you're waiting tables, everybody keeps asking you if you're going to become a teacher. And when your answer to that is no, they all look at you like, oh, so you're going to be a waitress for the rest of your life. Um, and I was actually very bad at the service industry because I'm kind of mean. But it turns out that it gives you great skills for interviewing people. And uh, so I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. So I wasn't stuck in the service industry forever. And I started writing things for little local publications. I was in New Orleans at the time, so I stumbled into being the film critic for this little feminist newspaper that somebody had started up. Then I moved to Colorado and I wrote about, well, first movies and then music and then started a political column at this little website called Caffeine Buzz, which was also a local pop culture you know, publication. And at some point, I was doing a lot of work and not making really any money um, and still waiting tables. And so I thought, Story of every what if life. I go to grad school? Um, so I did, in fact, go to journalism school at Temple in Philadelphia. And um, it did, in fact, actually help me get a job. So that was, I finished a decade ago, that last May. And so I've been an actual working journalist for 10 years of my life, which is weird because me finishing grad school coincided with the financial crisis. It's been an we interesting 10 years. It. Yeah, I mean, plenty to cover when you're uh, a left-wing journalist. Well, because yeah. I, I knew about you and, and I want to go in a minute on how we actually officially met in person. But before we go into that, I knew about your work um, because of I've noticed at some point on the internet some stuff you've done around Occupy. So, I mean... If before we go into the existing problems of journalism, you could explain to me how it feels to be a young journalist thrown into the midst of chaos, truly paradigmatic shift that was happening yeah. to our, our age, really. Yeah. I mean, we are where we are today mm -hmm. because in many respects of what happened in 2008. So tell me how it felt like starting off your professional career as a journalist within that space? I mean, so I finished grad school and I got an internship at The Nation magazine for the summer. So I moved to New York and 
it was actually a good time to move to New York because the rents were like somewhat reasonable. Like I found an apartment for under a thousand dollars a month. It was a studio, but still. And yeah, that summer, like everything was up in the air. You know, Obama was president now. There was that was when we first started talking about a Green New Deal, which finally is like know, a thing right? that people are talking about in a serious way. And I was a little older than the rest of the interns. All right. Um, I finished grad school at age 29. So it was weird being an intern, but I was also like a really motivated intern because I was yeah. just like, can I write something? Can I pitch something? Can I make friends with this person? Can I make friends with that person? Um, I taught Katrina Vanden Heuvel how to Twitter. <laughs> she really loves this story and shares it a lot, which makes me very happy. And yeah, I was, I was like just super, super hustling to try to get anywhere. And then from there, I got a job with Laura Flanders, who taught me everything I know about so many things. Um, what was at the time called Grit TV, and at the time was a daily TV show. Now she does a weekly TV show. Um, and we had so many people on because it was, again, it was this daily show. We always had to have new guests. I met such a huge cross-section of the left, yeah. of people who were doing all sorts of, you know, I... I Occupy was really when things started to actually cohere as a resistance right. Interesting. in the U.S. Um, the Tea Party was real big back then. Yeah, yeah. And, God, yeah. Um, but I did meet a lot of people who were organizing around, you know, the um, groups who did something called like, what was that? There was like the showdown on Wall Street. Um, there were a bunch of attempts to sort of kick something off around the financial crisis. This is where like the question then starts appearing for me within your trajectory, which is, it's a bit like chicken and the egg thing. What came first, the, the political Sarah or the journalist Sarah? I mean, I was always... Was it a dialectical process? It always is, <laughs> isn't it? It is always... The yeah. right Marxist answer. Exactly. Um, so I was of a certain age where the way you find politics was punk rock. Mm. Um, so you can blame my taste in music for... And particularly, I grew up outside of Boston, and there was a strong sort of working class, pro-union, sort of strongly Irish punk rock trend there. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I joke that like the Dropkick Murphys taught me what a labor union was. <laughs> and yeah, and so like, I discovered left politics that way. And, you know, it was the 90s. Um, the big thing was like the battle in Seattle, the no WTO protests, all of that. The Green Party, you know, voting for Ralph Nader. Um, good old days. And um, yeah, so I always had this politics and I didn't know what to do with it because there wasn't much of a left. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, as I was saying, I, I was working for this pop culture magazine. It was writing about music. It was writing about punk. And... I started just like being too pissed off to function because it was the Bush years. It was the Iraq war. It was all of this garbage. Right. And so my editor was like, do you want to write a political column for us? And so I was like, sure. Yeah. Um, so it was like cohered as something that I could do about everything that was on fire, different things on fire, but you know, some of the same ones. And yeah. And then like, the financial crisis happening while I was in journalism school and had some wonderful lefty professors in journalism school, I should add, was I like realized that I really wanted to learn what the hell had just happened. Like I was, so I actually went and like worked really hard to figure out like what is a credit default swap and how did it just break the world? Okay. Um, right. Because I was like, 
this stuff is presented to us like it's really, really complicated mm-hmm. and yeah. that we're too yeah, stupid yeah. to understand it. Like the average person can't figure out what is going on on Wall Street. This is why these brain geniuses who just broke the planet are still getting their bonuses, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're so smart that they're also the only ones who know how to fix the crisis that they just mm-hmm. caused. And I was just, you know, I don't have an economics background. I am very bad at math. Um, but I was like, I'm going to learn how to do this and then I'm going to learn how to understand this and then my job is going to be to explain it to people. Right. I mean, that that in and of itself, it's A, incredibly uh, brave of you. <laughs> I don't know if I would have had the guts to do it or the patience, but, but also... Importantly, certainly for Red Hacks, I mean, that is an attitude, that is a decision that separated you from the rest because obviously a lot of our colleagues that are not of our political persuasion and even some who are opt for, I'm going to trust the quote-unquote experts. Yes, yeah. And that leaves a vacuum in in the space where, where critical thinking should be, where analysis... Well, and I, I, you know, I credit being an old punk for like thinking that like the experts are all full of shit, (laughs) you know, like that's that's a real thing that like, you know, that the whole sort of egalitarian, but not only that, but like literally like screw you, don't tell me what to do kind of thing. It's helpful as a journalist yeah. to not be intimidated by the people who are supposedly smart and have all the power. Yeah. It's helpful to think they're all terrible people and should be destroyed. Um, I think this is a great attitude for journalists to have. Uh, this is suddenly a manifesto against technocrats. Oh, I, I mean, well, certainly, but it always is. Um, but like, I, I think that that is, yeah, it's a really helpful thing to, you know, to not give too much respect to anybody because that kind of respect leads to deference mm. and that yeah. is a terrible thing for a journalist to Absolutely. be, right? You should not be deferential to anyone. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I, I like watching the BBC better than watching American political TV because BBC journalists are mean to politicians and it's fun to watch. See, you say that <laughs> and I think we're jumping ahead in the whole episode, but let's just go in that trajectory yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, whatever. Uh, this is a conversation. Um, yeah. Because I often feel that certainly in Britain, but at large in within Western journalism, there is this sense of particularly when it's within the the public sector broadcasting like the mm-hmm. BBC, yeah. certainly journalists of a certain uh, you know uh, uh, pay grade upwards, there is a sense of you know palsy you know like a sort of we're pals with yeah, yeah. Yeah. certain ranks of of the establishment. And and therefore, whilst it almost feels performative, that kind of putting a politician in a corner and really grilling them on something or other, I think to a degree, because we find ourselves in, ourselves in such dire, extreme times, all of a sudden, those those grillings are real. Yeah. Because because these divisions in the establishment are starting to to become quite blatant. Yeah. yeah. But otherwise, I've, I've felt that one of the problems of, of media, certainly in this country, has yeah. been making certain uh, people in our society into mythological creatures that can yeah. do, that can lead, that can understand, and that can be either ec- economists or, ba- or or institutions or banks, for that matter, um, or they can be politicians. And I, and I feel like that sort of attitude of actually not taking anyone for bigger than just another human being is is crucial. I mean, it, there's this skepticism that comes with it, but 
I suspect it's necessary and wholesome. Absolutely. Within journalism. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, I write plenty of stories that are positive too, right? It's not like I'm just like <laughs> out there like, oh, this person's an asshole and they're terrible. But I think, you know, there's a lot of journalistic cliches about speaking truth to power and blah, mm. blah, blah. But like, really, we should always be questioning power, right? That that's the thing that like, you know, and so that requires an awareness of power and how it operates that like a lot of people just like conveniently pretend not to have. And it Absolutely. drives me nuts and I get mad at people, you know, on theoretically on our side as well as anyone else about like, you know, who are disingenuous about the amount of power they have um, as well as the amount of power the people that they're dealing with have. One of the things that was drilled into me by um, my news reporting professor at Temple, Lynn Washington, who is an excellent journalist himself, is that you, you know, you have to have that understanding of power. So you treat differently. There's a really good example of this, right? Of the, the journalist who tweeted the retweeted the guy who yelled at Boris Johnson the other right. day, right? Mark to Kunzberg. her million followers. And like to me, I heard Lynn Washington's voice in my head. He has, also has like a very sonorous voice, so it's a great voice to have in my head as like my journalistic consciousness. He's great. Um, to me, it is obvious that you don't treat this random father who is in the hospital with his sick child who yelled at Boris Johnson the same way you treat Boris Johnson. That guy is a, you know, person who happened to be there and see this mm. guy who is ruining his country um, and reacted. And you don't, like, put that guy in the same line of fire that you put the politician. Absolutely. Because... Boris Johnson has a tremendous amount of power. Not as much as he thinks he does, which is great. <laughs> but, you know, like, you don't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not... You have to responsibility to that guy to think about what you're doing to him. Well, in in the case of, of this particular incident, and for those listeners who are not aware of this, as Sarah said, you know, there was a, a man with a very sick child in a pediatrics ward in a hospital in London that Boris Johnson came to visit and obviously uh, approached Boris and, and harangued him on the destruction of the NHS in, in Britain uh, under Tory rule. Um, the man also happens to be a labor activist and uh, a labor Lorkinsburg. should be training all of its activists to do that. Well, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> uh, wavy hands. We call it bird dogging uh, and it's a skill. Definitely. I mean, I was actually editing bits of that footage and I mean, the man is very nervous, understandably. He is aware that there's, I mean, there's so much about that snippet mm -hmm. that is brilliant in terms of like Boris Johnson denying that there is cameras any, that there are any journalists the cameras. there. When denying exactly the that it's a photo op. Um, but then, and then Laura Koonsberg, who is, you know, the main political journalist at the BBC, certainly one of the most powerful, decides to, on her Twitter, literally expose name this father, who at the, I think at that point had not yet been identified or had very recently been identified, put it to her thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers as saying, this is him. And he is also, turns out that the father is also a labor activist. And I, and the reason why you know, obviously people might disagree with me, but the reason why she did this, and we have to remember that this woman is a journalist, was exactly to uh, devalue, delegitimize this person and their complaints as this is just political activism, which is interesting in and of itself because political activism is... Why do people get politically active, right? Well, exactly. It does not lack legitimacy if you are 
political and you have a complaint of course have an analysis more often than not if you're political you have several complaints but also like why do people get radicalized right people get radicalized because something happened to them right you experience something that has made you see the world in a different way and that is why you get political whether we're talking about the extinction rebellion people who are blocking the street are they still blocking the street i haven't seen Uh, they were about five minutes they were blocking the street outside here or us or Boris Johnson, presumably, right? Yeah, this is the thing, like a journalist in a very prestigious role for And this is objectivity, right? This is like what object what the idea that you can be objective does to you, right? Is like, oh well I'm just I'm just I'm just sharing information. Like information is not neutral. Yeah. Exactly. And your power the, that's, this is the fallacy is of neutrality. You, right. yeah. you cannot actually like just go through the world treating everybody as though they have equal amounts of power. That's bullshit. It's transparent bullshit. You know it's bullshit because you get paid however many million pounds a year the BBC pays you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, maybe it's not millions, I don't know. But like, you know, it's just this idea that you can like turn off your politics, your brain, your whatever, you know, it's just like, right, that that guy is a labor activist. He has politics. That's not a thing that you don't have, lady at the BBC. And and the the other side of this coin is that it seems to me that a lot of journalists will consider you either have political opinions and therefore you're a political activist and suddenly you're delegitimized because you're biased. In their view, mm-hmm. or alternatively, if you don't have a political opinion, you're taken just as someone who you can do a vox pop with, but then more often than not taken as some sort of like I wouldn't say court jester, but some sort of hillbilly you bring along. I was just complaining with some friends about how you know most journalists, a lot of the left think like regular people with big old scare quotes about regular people are stupid. Yeah, and like that is so pernicious right but like Absolutely. yeah you you have to sort of find this person who is the perfect like political void in the u.s they talk about swing voters all the time right and like so you or as we have it, the persuadables according right. to cambridge analytica right exactly yeah and it's this idea of this like mythic person who is um always like sort of white and working class ish mm. That has no sort of whatever other than like as a bellwether for whatever political fight we're having, whether it's Brexit or Trump or whatever else. Right. And a stop thinking people are stupid. You're going to do terrible journalism if you think people are stupid. Like one of the things that I say all the time is like, assume your readers are smart and they don't have the information that you have. Whereas a lot of people do the opposite. They assume people have too much information and they assume they're stupid and they assume they have to talk to them like they're stupid. Like this is like Vox and like the trend of like the explainer. Like it could be a really great idea, but often it's done as though you're talking to people who like can't function. You're, you're, yeah, I, and just, I would yeah. say in terms of like the, our trade, if we're going to be a little bit pedantic on this, it, it does encourage laziness from both the journalist, but also from the reader or the listener. Because at the end of the day, if you are assuming that your listener or your reader knows a lot about what you're talking about, even when they don't, they will learn something from what you're doing rather than just a very basic minimum information. So like... At this juncture, let's let's go into how we met because it is a, a sort of how it do is we a red solve? Story. Yeah, how it is a red hack story, and how do we? And it goes towards the how do we solve this conundrum? Because I think we followed each other on Twitter, and then you approached me. Uh, you slid into my DM. I did. I did. And uh, I sent her fan mail. <laughs> and 
so you really enjoyed the first episode of the first season of Red Hacks that was with Paul Mason. You felt that you'd been waiting for ages for something like yes. this or otherwise you'd thought of starting something like that. And then I said, well, if you're ever in London, let's meet up. And then you were. And I then we was did. conveniently in London very soon. I know. Um, and, it's and wonderful. So now that and now here I am again. It, <laughs> and not only you're here and we having and I'm having you on Red Axe. Yes. It's very meta. It's very meta. But also we've had these conversations in private many times over the state of things. And I guess the question at this point is what do you think needs to be done? How do we need to address this? Yeah, I mean, the thing that I wanted to do, and I was sort of talking to um, my friend Dan Denver, who does the Dig podcast about this. I was like, you know, because Dan is also a journalist, journalist, and not just like a sort of content producer. Um, and not that podcasts not aren't journalism. Podcast. Podcasts are also journalism. But you know what I mean? Like there's one of the things that frustrates me about the left media is that there is like very little money, which is fine. I'm not blaming like anybody for not having a ton of money to send me off to go do a deeply reported story. But like because of that, we have like this sort of efflorescence of left media and very little reporting. Yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of people um, think that an opinion piece is the only thing that sort of exists. And I don't want to crap on opinion pieces. I write plenty of them. I have lots of opinions, you might have guessed. But that that actually doing journalism, going out and talking to people, rather than having opinions about like what the working class wants or thinks or whatever, you don't even fucking talk to people. Um, And But also just presenting what people are saying, what people are doing even, without the mediation of your own opinion. Well, I think it's. I mean, as much as I'm not, I'm not trying to engage with the whole unbiased. It's it's the thing is that like every decision to cover or not cover something, to tweet somebody's you know Twitter handle, whatever, is a political decision, right? Like every decision we make on what story we're going to do or not do is a political decision, right? I spent my time in London this summer following around Labour's community organizing department, that was a political decision because this is a thing that is interesting that A, nobody else was covering, and B, is politically fascinating. And so, like, those are all political decisions. But the question of the story is, like, also, like, facts matter? What is happening? And context, which is another thing I always hear in Lynn Washington's voice. Your job is to provide context, he used to say. It was so great. And so what I can do is I can go cover that story. I can go to the thing and see what's happening and tell people this is what's happening. I can also say this is a thing that hasn't happened in similar political parties in the Europe and the U.S. This is a thing that used to happen in some way, but historically then it changed. I can interview somebody like Paolo Grabato who, about, you know, who has written about this, who is an expert on this stuff and, you know, put some context to it. And that all requires my historical knowledge, my years of experience, my ability to interview people, and my political take on the thing are all involved and embedded in that, and it's all a series of political decisions, but it's not just like 800 words about like, I saw the labor community organizing department do a thing and it was good. Yeah, It's like, this is actually what's happening, it's showing people what's happening, it's contextualizing it, and that requires, you know, that, that took a lot of work to be able to be the person who could write that story. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we don't value that work on the left. No, 
I, I don't think we do. And I think, and I, I mean, think, you and I do because we do it, but <laughs> everybody else doesn't. <laughs> we feel undervalued. Yes. That's the problem. Yes. Well, I think in great part, and this again says something I think about where the industry is right now. It says also something about the left that unfortunately hasn't yet fully dismissed the attitude that the rest of, of society has towards journalism and try to re or re-engage or engage in a, in a new way of doing journalism. But for me, it's this idea that, okay, journalism is telling a story and I subscribe to that. But then suddenly the story is no longer a story, but rather my story. There's a sort of, I mean, navel gazing is a very harsh way to understand. Yes. I think there's more than yeah. just navel gazing, yeah. but it's still, I mean, in a way, it is a product of the times, right? Like mm -hmm. we are living neoliberalism is a hell of exactly a drug. at you know the 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 end of one would argue uh, uh, neoliberalism in we which call it late capitalism for a reason. Exactly, uh, we are the products of a few decades of telling us that only you and you matter, and that's it. And society is being disintegrated and attacked, and and the way in which we interact is often through a screen rather than anything else, and so on and so forth. And so, when we, the way in which, to me, that seems to be the case, you end up doing journalism and telling a story, ends up being let me tell you how I see the story happening, rather than let me tell you what I saw, without me being part of that. You know, without it's it's a bit like I almost think of it. You know, if I were if I were holding a camera rather than writing words, I don't want anyone when watching what I've filmed to think of me. I want to just let them see what I'm seeing as if they're looking at through my eyes rather than being also in front of the camera, which is fine. Yeah. I sometimes also do that, both metaphorically and literally speaking uh, now. But as you just said, I 100% agree. There is a, a very big need to go back or to invest at least yeah. in reporting and just allowing people to see what's going on because a lot of time most people don't have the chance to know what what labor community organizing is doing for instance or what is happening at you know a local newspaper in Yorkshire uh, in terms of you know jobs being cut or whatever or what is happening in the power stations in Scotland or, right you know exactly so there's 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 so much out there because journalism has been defunded, gutted. They can't figure out how to make it make money anymore. Um, so, so what do we do? What do we do? Communism. Um, <laughs> we simple. Seize the means of production. Um, literally. But also, I like. I think one of the things is that like it's great that there are again that there are left publications all over the place um, that are trying to do you know reporting on some level or another um and that some of this is budgetary and i understand that again some of it though is not and i think there is yeah there there's this thing where like we say objectivity is bullshit because it is but like that doesn't mean that like going out and gathering information is bullshit um that doesn't mean that there aren't like real things that you need to know about. Um, that doesn't mean that a piece that is ostensibly a book review that is actually a you know salvo in a faction fight of your DSA chapter um, is the same as you know going and reporting on what's happening in the DSA chapter, right? Like this kind of thing is it's different. It's not like it's valueless. What I'm saying is that, like, the thing 
that actually doesn't get treated as if it does matter is the harder work, right? And so I get frustrated because, you know, I am one of the rare people who is able, because of the wonderful folks at the Type Media Center, to do this because basically, like, I'm supported by a foundation, right? I get a fellowship that supplements what I get paid per article so that I can do things like travel. So I can do things like spend a bunch of time reporting something that a publication doesn't necessarily have the money to pay me for. Um, so I get to write 5,000 words about Labor's community organizing department basically because I decide it matters, convinced an editor that it was, and somebody else trusts me and my judgment enough to do that. So I get to write 5,000 words about the Lordstown plant closing in Ohio and go there and spend time with people and really try to, you know, figure it out and also, again, dig into some history and some context and add some other stuff that people don't know to that. And then those pieces don't get shared nearly as much as a thing that I wrote in half an hour about, you know, people who are pretending that they care about anti-Semitism because of Ilhan Omar. And it's great that a lot of people read that piece, too. Yeah. I was mad, and it's a thing to, to be mad about. But, like, I want people to take seriously the work of journalism. And, like, we, you said our trade, and I love that word, because, like, a lot of people will say our profession, and professions can bite me. Um, Barbara Ehrenreich gave this wonderful speech years ago. She was a commencement speaker at a journalism school, and she told the journalism grads, like, welcome to the American working class. And, you know, I think that's important. What we do is work. It's a job. It's valuable. It is valuable because it is labor, because, like, you know, working people have value because we're people. But also, like, this is important work that needs to be treated as something, like, worth investing in and worth fighting for. Well, I feel that, again, I cannot even believe that we need to uh, reaffirm that in 2019. But, like, we need to remember and we need to insist that journalism is work and isn't just a privilege of... Or something we do because we love it. Well, for starters... I do love it. Sometimes I also hate it. For starters. <laughs> and, and I, But I feel like that side of the conundrum is talked about because there are so many platforms of new media yeah. where a lot of people unfortunately are underpaid you might notice mm -hmm. that i'm not naming names but i think we don't need to name names because we know who they are and obviously that issue of has thankfully because of the work of journalists who are in trade unions or who have unionized become a bit more infamous but the other side of that problem i feel is certainly in this country is that journalism starts being treated as something that for instance, politicians do when they're free in their free time, you know, like as in they write a few opinion pieces or a few column inches for a paper about Boris the economy. Johnson, right? Well, Boris exactly. Johnson Boris Johnson. Well, precisely. Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, both of them. Can we get were better journalists to run for office? We can a hundred percent get. I can. <laughs> can we get make less you shit a journalists list. to run for office? Um, I'm not doing it. But somebody I mean, should. I mean, and it, to be fair, in, in a way, or not to be fair, to, to be to be honest, I think in a way, it's a similar line with with Donald Trump. Almost is like you mm -hmm. know that this this sphere of sprouting sh or, or sort of shouting out shitty opinions and then suddenly becoming a politician seems to be like 
very easily. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's it shouldn't be in either direction. A politician yeah. becomes a journalist or a journalist becomes a politician. If that's the kind of job that they do in either field, yeah. absolutely no. they're cancelled. Get in the sea. <laughs> um, Cancel culture. <laughs> but uh, but 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 I mean like you know there there are those two things happening at the same time and and I think that if we remember and that we insist that journalism is a job and that we are workers rather than uh aficionados or or you know some sort of hobby that we're we have activists yeah. right like I think exactly that that word drives me nuts now for a lot of different reasons but one of them is that like whenever um I make a political point that stings some people they call me an activist um and well, it's the same when when Owen Jones got mm-hmm, attacked right, by the exactly, far right activist it's all like, of look. a sudden he's a labor activist rather than a journalist as if the reason why he got attacked was not because he is a famous journalist because he covers labor and is also an advocate for labor. Yeah. And so you being called an activist, like it's not, I, I'm i not one because like most of the political work that I do is in fact doing journalism, but like also that word again, right? We're talking about the, the journalist calling the labor activist, calling out Boris Johnson as though that somehow like devalues you as though an activist is a certain kind of person, right? So like, who isn't politically active these days? One in seven teenagers in America have walked out on climate strike. Like, it's great. But, you know, so this this idea, though, that... And like, if you're not, that also says something about it. Yeah, <laughs> but I but I do want to sort of... This, this idea that one cannot be an activist and a journalist, but also, like, what is an activist journalist? What does that mean? Um, what is... I, I'm just... I hate the word now, so... No, that, that's you know, very fair. I'm, yeah, yeah, because it I has think, been thrown at us all the time. Yeah, yeah but I do think also that, like, you know, I'm a... I'm a journalist who doesn't lie to you about my political opinions mm. um yeah because everybody has them and some of them are just you know that the status quo is fine but i also like i value the work of organizing which is why i spend so much time covering it um so like to call my attack like i do it it's like i'm not doing it i i organized one workplace that i worked at i tried to organize another one you know i've done Various things like that. I did, you know, when I was living in a small town in upstate New York, more local community organizing. Um, but really, like, when I'm a journalist, I'm being a journalist. And that means um, to take an actually advice to political organizers from Al Ball, right? Like, tell no lies, claim no, no easy victories is, is great advice for both organizers and journalists, right? Like, yeah, actually, true. I got into an argument... Um, once upon a time, I was on a panel about labor journalism, actually, at um, a conference, and somebody in the audience who is a well-respected academic said that, you know, the job of, of movement journalists, it's another term, right, movement journalists, is to, like, cheerlead the movement. And I was like, no, my job is to tell the truth. Because if you don't know how it happened, whether mm-hmm. it's good or bad, if you don't know how it's happening and what's really happening, then you can't replicate it. Well, yeah. Or you can't, or you're going to replicate it if it's bad, yeah. right? So you actually, like, I, I, people get mad at me, you know, plenty of times. I got a grumpy email from a friend um, about the labor community organizing piece because I referred to a bunch of, you know, organizations in the U.S. as mainly email lists. <laughs> but they are mainly email lists. And I would like them to not be. But at the moment, I am going to describe them as they are and not the way that I wish they would be. Mm. Yeah. Um, because I'm not a fiction writer yet. Although I do love the line from uh, Walida Emerishan and Adrian Marie Brown that all organizing is science fiction. 
because it's all trying to create a world that doesn't exist yet. Right. Um, so I love that. They did a wonderful book called um, Octavia's Brood, which is organizers writing science fiction. It's wonderful. Anyway. Digression from journalism, but it's a great book. But, uh, and yeah, I also people. feel like, I mean, that is beautiful philosophical way to look at it yeah. yeah anyway but i am not a science fiction writer at the moment i am a journalist so right my job is to talk about things as they are and how and things as they have been right i think knowing history is a good thing for journalists well yeah it's uh should be mandatory i would say no exactly i i actually i mean i loved my english degree i'm a giant nerd um and i really want to go yell at pete Buttigieg about lying about reading ulysses but i also kind of wish i'd studied history instead Although in I just order, read a lot of history now. Boost so. your journalism or just because just I mean, well, A, just cause, but also you still like can. Yeah, I, I well, I, I am an amateur student of history. I read all of the labor history books that the academics publish. It's like the five other people in their field and me. Um, <laughs> but it's it's because I think it's it's important to know that stuff, right? It's it's valuable context. Absolutely. So on that note, context. Tell us about the new book you're writing. Oh goodness. Speaking of science fiction, uh, <laughs> my new book is currently still. <laughs> it will exist. It's halfway done. Katie, don't kill me. Katie being your editor. Katie being my editor, the wonderful, wonderful Katie O'Donnell at Bold Type Books. So my new book is very relevant to this discussion because it is about loving your job and how that is a scam used to convince us to work harder for less money in crappier conditions. I feel triggered. Yeah, I know, right? Every I, I really don't. Like, the first book when I was writing, it was really hard to explain to people. I was like, I'm writing a book about, like, social movements since the financial crisis and blah, blah, blah. This book, I tell people what I'm writing about, and everybody's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Let me, me tell yeah, you exactly. your story. No, I, I, this book could be, it's already too long, Katie's already going to kill me. It could be like a hundred chapters long of different types of work, right? Because like everybody has a story on this front. And so I had to try to like make a narrative out of different kinds of work so I can trace a trajectory of this ideology, right? This, this thing that is used to convince us that we just we love our jobs and our jobs are the wage labor is the most fulfilling thing we can do with our time right exactly like when you say it like that it's just like but uh, you know god not even gonna start listing all the other I things know, i could be doing I know. exactly and and exactly. we do and we do love our jobs and this no, is exactly. the irony behind i mean it, right? literally the book is going to start off with me talking about how i love my job and also um what that means in terms of my lifestyle as a you know, nearly 40-year-old woman who thankfully does not want to have kids, so because I couldn't have afforded to have them. Um, but, you that, know, that is, is a, yeah, a whole other conversation. It is a whole other conversation because it's a literal reality that, like, like, I could not do what I do if I had children. Like, I could not do the kind of work that I do. Yeah. Because, the, you know, the mobility capitalism. Necessary. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, on that note, <laughs> and, only, and, and only because, unfortunately, these episodes have a time restriction. Tell us what you're reading. What am I reading? Wait, I, am I always reading, like to finish on this note. Right now, I am reading Jean Genet's Carrel of Breast, um, because I'm always trying to read fiction as well as nonfiction. And I'm reading a book called Hard Sell about retail workers by um, Peter, I'm going to spell his last name because I don't know how to pronounce it. It's I-K-E-L-E-R. Okay, I'm not going to try and say that either. No, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm sorry, Peter, if you're listening. The book is great. Fantastic. Sarah, thank you so much for coming. This is so good. What a start to season two. 
I am Joanna Romero, and this was the first episode of the second season of Red Hacks, a show about being a left-wing journalist in a neoliberal world, hosted by Politics Theory Other. If you like what you've heard, please don't forget to subscribe to Politics Theory Other on iTunes and leave a review. And if you want to support PDO, please consider becoming one of our patrons for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2, at patreon.com forward slash Paul Theory Other. Thank you.